Good morning, family of God. Before we begin studying this text of scripture from Psalm 78, I would like to take a few more moments for quiet prayer to prepare our hearts to hear God's word. So if you would, let's just bow our heads together for a moment, and I will invite you just in your own heart to ask God to speak to you this morning. You are here on purpose. I don't know what your purposes were, why you were planning to be here today. But God has a purpose for you. He wants to speak to you. So let's just take a second to ask God to help us hear what he wants to say to each of us. Lord God, we praise you because you are the creator of heaven and earth. We thank you for giving us life, for making this world that we live in. Lord, as we sung a moment ago, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and that your word is trustworthy. Thank you for the gift of scripture. On a cold day, we pray for grace for all of our neighbors that may not have a place of shelter. Pray that you would... Help them to find a place of safety. And we thank you that you have given us this warm place to gather in your presence and worship you and hear your word. Thank you most of all for what we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. That Jesus Christ, you gave your life for us to save us. We worship you here this morning. And God, I ask for your help for the next few minutes. Lord, as we study your word, would you help me to say everything that you want me to say And nothing that you don't. And would you give us all ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to trust and remember and be transformed by your word. Ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today is the second week in a series of sermons in which we're studying what the scriptures have to say about the theme of spiritual generations. So we introduced that theme last week. Everybody say generations. This concept of generations, you'll remember, is just alerting us to the fact that we are not isolated individuals. We have ancestors that went before us, and their choices have deeply shaped our lives for good and for ill. And if Jesus doesn't come back today, we will have descendants that come after us, either biological descendants, there's some parents and grandparents in the room, uh, but even if, if you do not have biological offspring, the choices that you make And the way that you love people, the way that you invest in others, will have an effect on coming generations. And as we talk about spiritual generations, we're trying to think of that reality of generations from God's perspective. Last week, we really focused on the fact that God is a God who is in the business of redeeming generations, of healing generations, of giving hope to generations. Aren't you glad that you can trust God with the future of your family? God loved your ancestors. God loves you. And God loves your descendants. Your children and grandchildren, those who come after you. Today we're building on this theme by looking at the verses we've just heard from Psalm 78, which really cause us to raise the question, what kind of legacy 
am I leaving for the generations after me? I'd encourage you to even write down that question and make it one that you ponder. What kind of legacy am I leaving for the next generation and for the generation after that and for the generation after that? And again, parents and grandparents, I want to say that being a parent, being a grandparent is a privilege and a sacred responsibility. So you can think about this for in terms of biological generations. But I know there's a lot in here who do not have children. And this is for you, too, because part of what Jesus has done is bring us into his spiritual family so that as you share the good news of Jesus with others and teach those who are coming up at the next generation about God, you can have a legacy of spiritual generations. So I ask again, what will the legacy be that you leave for the next generation? Some of you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor and theologian as the Nazis were taking over Germany and ended up resisting the evil that took over his generation. And in the midst of all that darkness, before he ended up giving his life and being assassinated by the Nazis, uh, he made the statement, the righteous person is the one who lives for the next generation. I want us to think that way today. And as we study the scriptures, I think you'll see this passage of the Bible is saying to us the most important legacy that you can leave for those who come after you is a relationship with God. So they can hope in God so they can know God. As we think about the legacy that we leave to the next generation, there's a lot of good gifts you can give them. You can, if you have kids, you can give them a stable home life of love. That will make a huge impact on their lives. You can help them do your best to help them get a good education. If you prosper financially, you might be able to leave them some money. All those things could be a blessing. But the most important gift by far that you could give to the next generation is leaving a legacy of hope in God. Leaving them a relationship with God. That's what this psalm is about, but don't take my word for it. Let's dive into the text and look at it together. Let's start by reading those first three verses again. It says this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So right From the beginning, the text says, give ear, incline your ear. The text is asking us, are you listening? Everybody say, give ear. And I encourage you again, just to remember, we're not here to listen to Pastor Jared or anybody else. We're here to listen to the scriptures. This is God speaking. He wants to say something to you in the Bible. And if you have ears to hear, he will speak truths that will have a big impact on your life. So I encourage you always, as we approach the scriptures, to do it prayerfully. Even now, in your own heart, you can say, God, I don't want to miss what you have to say today. Let me listen. Those of you who are familiar with the Psalms know that many of the Psalms are prayers. But this Psalm, Psalm 78, is not a prayer. These opening verses make it clear that this is a wisdom psalm. So a key word today is wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. And this psalm was written almost 3,000 years ago in Hebrew to instruct God's people. The psalm is long. You've got the first eight verses printed in your bulletin. That's what we just read. But if we read the whole thing 
it would be 72 verses long. I thought about putting the whole thing in your bulletin, but Jordan said that's going to be five pages long. So, Kara, you're welcome. You only had to read the first eight pages today. I will occasionally refer to some of those other verses if you want to, if you've got a Bible app on your phone and want to open it up. But we're going to mostly talk about those first eight verses. But if you read the whole 72, this long psalm is summarizing many of the stories that we read in earlier parts of the scripture, especially in the book of Exodus. It's reminding God's people of their history. But this isn't just a history lesson. It's a spiritual lesson. The psalm is here to teach us really important things about God and about ourselves that God wants us to pass on to the next generation as a spiritual legacy. Notice verse 2. The psalmist refers to his teaching as a parable And as dark sayings. Now, dark there doesn't mean evil. It means mysterious. And these phrases are alerting us to the fact that what follows in the psalm is not just a poetic summary of Israel's national history. The psalm is explaining spiritual mysteries that have been revealed by God. In other words, this is God's word to his people. He's wanting to show his heart towards them. And notice also that in verse 3, the psalmist indicates that he's passing on spiritual truths that God revealed to previous generations. Look again at verse 3. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So the psalmist is thinking about his ancestors. God spoke to my ancestors and that has been passed on. It would be good to pause and think about how deep and old this wisdom is that we're reading, okay? This was written 3,000 years ago. And the guy who wrote it says, I'm teaching you some ancient stuff. From his perspective, it was ancient. About how God had spoken to her forefathers. This is time-tested, important spiritual wisdom that God has revealed. So then we got to ask the question, okay, what is the wisdom? What are we supposed to learn? And it becomes clear that the psalmist is not only thinking about his spiritual ancestors, the generations that came before... He's also thinking about spiritual descendants, the generations that will come after. Let's look at verses four through seven. It says this. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. Okay, that's our key word for the whole sermon series. Everybody say generation. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn. He's thinking about people that have not been born yet, that will be born in the future like us 3000 years later. And arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. I encourage you to underline those words. We're going to think about that. Set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You can see clearly in these verses the idea of spiritual generations and legacy. What God has revealed to our ancestors and they have taught to us, we want to pass on to their children and their children so that those who haven't been born yet can hear God's truth and then pass it on to their children and their children. This is thinking about many, many generations. As we think about the idea of legacy, the Bible is stretching our imaginations to think longer term about the future. Some of us go through life and like long term planning means, what am I going to get for lunch on Tuesday? 
Some of you are much more planners than that. You're thinking five years out, ten years out. But this psalm is stretching you to think, what, what about, what kind of legacy will there be on earth a hundred years after I die? Because I was here. It's not about wanting people to remember us. It's just about what are we leaving behind for the coming generations. It's stretching us to think bigger, deeper questions about the significance of our lives. The latter half of verse four and then verse five summarize the content of the teaching that we're supposed to pass on to subsequent generations, to our children and grandchildren, those who come after let me try to summarize what I think it's saying about what we're supposed to pass on, and then I'll show it to you in the text. Two things. Two things we're supposed to pass on. One, we're, post, we're supposed to pass on the stories of what God has done to save us because he loved us. Your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, physical or your, the spiritual generations that come to you, they need to know the stories of what God has done to save us because he loves us. Because those stories of how God has acted in history are God's way of revealing himself to us so that we can know his heart and have a relationship with him and find our own place in that story. That's the first thing. The second thing we're supposed to uh, pass on is God's moral wisdom, his commandments, so that we and those who come after us can develop character that reflects the character and the heart of God. So first, we're supposed to pass on the stories of God's salvation. And second, we're supposed to pass on God's moral wisdom. Let me show you both of those in the text. The the part about stories is from the second half of verse four. If you look at it again, we must teach the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. That's talking about the stories of God's love in history, his glorious deeds. Everybody say glorious deeds. Tell your children the story of God's mighty deeds of grace and salvation. Now, if we read through the next 70 verses of this psalm, we would hear, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these stories told. I'm not going to read it, but let me summarize a little bit about what the psalm goes on to tell us about. It focuses on the story of God's people, Israel, during the dark time of their history, when they became slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were afflicted. And that's already a reminder That when we go through dark times, God has not stopped loving us. He cares for us from generation to a generation. He is faithful. But the psalm tells the story of when the Israelites were enslaved, they cried out to the Lord for mercy. And God moved with power. He did glorious deeds. He did wonders. And in this case, he raised up his servant Moses and appeared to Moses and told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let my people go. But Pharaoh didn't listen. So God stretched out his mighty hand and and did sent plagues on Egypt until the arrogant, oppressive will of Pharaoh was broken. He set the children of Israel free. If you're here last week, this is deja vu. Because in Exodus, talking about the same story. But the psalm goes on to recount. Then Pharaoh changed his mind and tried to chase them down to make them slaves again. But God parted the Red Sea. And the children of Israel walked through on dry land. God judged their enemies and preserved their life. By his grace and mercy and steadfast love. Then it tells the story. Now you've got a big crowd of people, tribes, thousands of people living in the desert. How are you going to live? But God miraculously fed them. Hey, have you ever struggled to make ends meet and God provided for you, church family? He's faithful. He did that for Israel. 
He miraculously gave them water from a rock. It reminds of the story. The psalm also goes a little bit beyond the Exodus story and talks about how God led his people into the promised land. And the psalm ends with God giving his people a wise king, King David, who it compares to a wise shepherd to lead the people of Israel. That's where the psalm ends, but that is not where the story of God's steadfast love for his people ends. As we read this psalm, we can keep going with the story and we have the benefit of 3,000 more years of perspective. As the rest of the scriptures make clear, King David was a wise king sometimes. He was a good king sometimes, but he was also a deeply flawed character. Sometimes his mistakes brought pain on his people. But before he died, God made a promise to David that there's going to be a descendant who comes from you who will be a different kind of king. He's going to establish a kingdom that will be for all nations and for all time, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And a thousand years after David lived, Jesus was born, fulfilling that promise. He is the heir of David, the descendant of David and the son of God. The greatest of all God's glorious deeds was not the parting of the Red Sea, although that was pretty epic. The greatest of all God's glorious deeds was the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Because this man is God, the creator in human flesh who has come to be with us to. He he did miracles. He healed sick people. He cast out demons. He fed hungry people, did amazing things. And then he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. And sometimes I just think that's a Those are words we can hear so many times that our hearts become desensitized to what it means. Maybe you grew up hearing it. Maybe God sent Pastor Jared up here and stirred in his heart to start weeping over the cross this morning as a prophetic sign for you. Maybe God is wanting you to think, have you thought recently about how glorious the glorious deeds of God are? Have you thought about it? The depth of the cross? Here's what the cross represents. It means this. God, the creator of heaven and earth, loves sinners like me and you so much that he would take on a human nature, enter into history for us, and suffer And die so that we could be forgiven and healed and so that the generations that come after us could know his grace. That's what it's about. And then he rose from the grave and it's not a fairy tale, friends. We've got a whole lot of historical witnesses of hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus and were still willing to die decades later for their testimony, their eyewitness testimony. I saw him. This is not apologetic science. I'm not about to start quoting all the history for you, but this is real. It's real. It happened. It's the glorious seed of God. Jesus rose from the dead. And the first thing that the psalm is teaching us that we need to pass on to the next generation is the stories of God's steadfast love, his mighty deeds of faithfulness so that they can learn to find their place in God's story. So everybody say stories of love. But the second thing we need to pass on, we said, is The moral wisdom of God. Everybody say commandments. We see this in verse five. It says God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now, I do want to emphasize the stories of God's love are more important than the commandments. 
You remember being a kid. If all you get is rules, you don't want to keep those rules, do you? Any, anybody break a lot of rules? And then later in life, you're trying to parent your kids. And then you start having flashbacks about your own life. And he's like, this is what my parents thought. <laughs> Generationally, some patterns repeat. We all need to learn God's wisdom. But if we just pass on rules, actually the Bible says what human nature tends to do with rules is rebel against them. That's why I'm using this story, Moral Wisdom. First thing we need to know is the story of how God loved us. And as our kids and children and grandchildren begin to understand that God loves them, then they start to trust this God and want to learn his wisdom for how to live in the world. And that's what we can teach them as we teach them the commandments of God. We can teach them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and to love their neighbors as themselves. We can teach them the commandments of God, like be generous to the poor. We teach them that true greatness is not about dominating other people, but about serving others. What do you want for your kids and your grandkids? They win all the sports trophies. They get all the college scholarships and they're selfish. Nothing wrong with the trophies or the scholarships. But wouldn't you rather have kids that live for others? This is causing us to think more deeply about what kind of legacy we want to leave. Jesus taught greatness is not about winning. It's not about dominating. It's about serving others. We want to teach our kids to be faithful and truthful, to be people of integrity, to be just and merciful, to care, to care for the vulnerable. So much of what God commands us in Scripture is common sense. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Jesus said it, but lots of moral teachers have said it. Jesus also said some stuff that was not common sense, which still can rub us the wrong way today, like love your enemies. Serve those that hate you. This is a radical countercultural way of living that God wants us to pass on to our children. We can warn our kids about how empty it is to live for the false gods that tend to dominate in our culture, like money, sex, power, and self. We can teach this with our words, but more importantly, we need to teach by our examples. I think it was James Baldwin. I may be quoting the wrong wrong person, but I think it was James Baldwin who said, every generation of kids has been bad at doing what their parents said, and every generation of kids has been good at doing what their parents did. That's challenging, isn't it, parents? It doesn't mean we shouldn't teach with our words, but it means our kids are much more likely to care about what we say if our lives are lives of integrity that, that echo what our words say. So that's what we need to tell our children. Pass on to the next generation. Stories of God's loving faithfulness and the moral wisdom he gives us. Now we've got to step back and ask, what difference will that make for future generations? And that question is really answered in verse 7. I told you to underline it a second ago. If we tell our kids the story of God's love and teach them God's moral wisdom, if we teach with our words and with our lives, doesn't mean we have to, but it means when we mess up, we tell about God's grace towards us and we ask forgiveness and we teach again and again. What are the results we're going for? Verse seven says this, so that they should set their hope in God. That's the key. That's the legacy. Today we're talking about a legacy of hope. So everybody say hope in God. That's the goal. And I think God's word is 
inviting us this morning to think about what kind of legacy are we leading, leaving for the next generation? And is it a legacy of hope? And then we've got to ask, hope in what? We should perhaps think for a second about that word hope. Hope has to do with how we think and feel about the future. The opposite of hope is despair. Despair doesn't have to look sad and depressed. It can, for sure. But despair can look like spending my whole life chasing pleasures to try and distract myself from the sense that I don't have anything really meaningful I'm living for. Hope is a different way of thinking and feeling about the future. Hope can be about my own personal future, but it can also have to do about the future of my family, the future of our city, the future of the world. It can be bigger than me. The future of my descendants. To think about hope is to think about what am I living for? What do I desire? Hope also has to do with trust. Sometimes in our culture, we use the word hope basically just to mean wishful thinking. But hope in Scripture is about something more. What do I put my trust in for the future? We can trust in a lot of things. And what this is telling us is hope in God. Hope in God. Trust in Him. The best possible hope is God Himself, whose love never fails. And who is unchanging. Also, the scripture, as it's asking us to think about hope, not only who do we trust, and we want to answer that question with God, but as we ask the question, what do we long for? What do we desire for the future? We just need to think about that for ourselves and for our kids. Because a lot of us spend a lot of our lives, a lot of our lives kind of running after things that when you stop to think about it, it feels kind of like you're on a hamster wheel, doesn't it? I'm running after what? Success in career, money, maybe I'm just trying to be very comfortable and enjoy some pleasures. What am I living for? And what the Bible is telling us is God made you to have a relationship with God. Everything else that you have tasted that is good is a little bit good because it's a little bit like God. And those good things you've tasted in life are good because they come from God, but on purpose He made them where they wouldn't satisfy you forever to alert you to the fact that you're made for more. As you think about hope, you can think about in your life, sometimes we chase a goal, we chase a goal and we never get it, but here's what sometimes people have had happen to them, maybe you've had in your own life, you chase a goal, you chase a goal, and you achieve it and feel good for what, how long? 20 minutes, a week, a month? And it it can be very depressing. Ask some Olympic athletes the week after winning. It can be very empty. It can be very depressing. What, What am I living for? What am I chasing? What the scripture is alerting us to think about is, first of all, the only thing that can is reliable enough to put our trust in it for an unknown future is God. But also the only thing that could satisfy us is God. So hope in God has that double meaning. Everybody say hope in God. Long-term thinking means I'm thinking about what happens to me a hundred years after I die and what happens to the world 
my children, grandchildren, the spiritual legacy, who comes after me a hundred years after I die. So we need to think about what am I living for? What am I hoping in? The main way to teach your kids how to hope in God is by hoping in God. Right? Most of us, I would venture to say, the temptation that we face in life, the biggest temptation is not to, like, murder baby seals and torture people, right? Probably most of us, the biggest temptations we face in life is just to live for trivialities. I just want to be a little more successful, a little more comfortable, have a little more pleasure. It's kind of empty. And then my kids are, but follow my example. Unless God intervenes by his grace. What's wrong with being comfortable? What's wrong with being pleasure? Hey, listen, you don't need to feel guilty about those things. Pleasure is a gift from God. Don't you love good food? Don't you love? Hey, listen, if God sent me a weekly Swedish massage, I would not complain. I'd say glory to God, right? Nothing wrong with pleasure. Nothing wrong with comfort. But the problem is, if I'm living for them, that's just too small. That's too small. It can't satisfy me. And, and actually, if I chase it, I'm going to tend to get locked in a prison of my own selfishness, which cannot satisfy. God's made me for a deeper joy. He's made you for a deeper joy. And perhaps this morning, the Holy Spirit's wanting to intervene in our own lives through the stories of God, through the commandments of God, to awaken a new and deeper hope in us that can then be passed on to the next generation. Because... We are going to affect the next generation. And I've been talking about affecting the next generation positively. But verse 8 is a sobering reminder that it could go the other way. Look at verse 8 again. And that they be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast. Whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see, the, the author of Psalm 78 is saying we have learned spiritual wisdom from our ancestors, but we also have lots of examples of folly and rebellion and stubborn selfishness in our ancestors. And as we read through the rest of the verses over and over again, it tells the story of after God rescued his people, they were still stubborn. They still rebelled. They kept hardening their heart. They didn't listen to God. And over and over again, they failed to trust his salvation. They they failed to, uh, I love verse 22. If you got your Bible, you can look at verse 22. It says, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. If you, we don't trust God to save us and satisfy us, we're going to run after something else that we think will do it. And that's what kept happening generation after generation. I don't have time to read through all the negative examples. You can study them this week if you want. But if we step back and ask, what can we learn from the neg- negative examples? Here's the point of all of them. They did not listen to God. They put their hope in things that were not trustworthy. They sought things that could not satisfy. And because of that, they taught their children to do the same. And there was generational negative effects. The invitation then today is to remember God loves you. God wants a relationship for you. He wants you to hope in something solid and satisfying. And pass it on to subsequent generations. Now, some of you today are feeling very encouraged by what you're hearing. And some of you are probably feeling the opposite of that. You're feeling discouraged. Perhaps you're feeling some regrets about your own failures. If that's, if that's 
the case, I want to point you to another verse, which is not in your bulletin, but you can find it in, in the Bible. Psalm 78. This is verse 38 from our psalm. Here's what it says. After one of these sections where it talked about how foolish and rebellious some of Israel's ancestors had been, it says, yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Isn't that a wonderful little passage there? God is compassionate. God loves his people even when we act like fools. Aren't you happy about that, church? God loves me when I act like a fool. God loves you when you act like a fool. I started with me so I wouldn't hurt your feelings, okay? God loves all of us when we act like fools. And the grace of God is such that he has no desire for us to continue suffering in our folly. But in his compassion, it says he atoned for their iniquity. That means he covered it up. He forgave it. Of course, God's greatest act of atonement, again, is the cross of Jesus. This is the moment where Jesus took on himself the penalty for all of our stubborn selfishness and foolishness so that if we trust in Jesus, we can be set free from it. And it's never too late. Wherever you are right now with whatever regrets and things going on in your life, here's the truth. God loves you where you are right now. God is here with open arms, eager to forgive you where you are right now. And if you'll open your heart to him, not only can that bring blessing for you, it can bring blessing that still, wherever you are right now, can flow out to touch generations. Now, I want to end today by asking you to think about the idea of generational momentum. The decisions that each generation makes are going to have significant impact on subsequent generations. You can think of it like a, a tide or a current in a river. This idea of generational momentum is implicit in our text today, and it was also in the text we looked at from Exodus 34 last week. In our text today, the psalmist is saying some of our spiritual ancestors were wise. God spoke to them and they passed on true teaching to us. Some of our spiritual ancestors were foolish and rebelled against God. And he's saying to his hearers and to us, you have forces tugging on you in both of those ways. Be careful which one you let influence you and shape your own decisions. But of course, it's the case that our decisions also create generational momentum. Now, some of you in this room, I know, have been blessed to inherit a legacy of faith. And you're thankful for that. If you have a praying mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather or somebody who has had a benefit on your life, I know that you're thankful to God for that. Amen. And maybe you don't even know their name, but there are people um, who uh, have may have influenced your life that way, even if you don't know it. There is a rocking chair in my house, which is my favorite rocking chair, because my great grandmother, who I only met once that I recall, used to sit in that rocking chair and pray at four o'clock in the morning, every morning. The one time I met her, I was a little boy. We went to Colorado to visit her. She was, I think, 90 in a nursing home and she had lost her vision and there was a lot of dementia setting in. So there was a lot of confusion because she had it been able to see for a while. She hadn't been able to read her Bible for a long time, but everybody knew she loved her Bible. So when we went and visited, my brother kept pulling the little Gideon King James Bible out of the the drawer in her nursing home and he would sit and read to her. And here's what would happen. This 90 year old great grandmother 
whom I had never met before. He would read to her a few verses and she would just quote for a chapter or so. She would just keep going. And at first he was like reading John 3.16. But as he kept going, he was like, okay, grandma needs a challenge. Okay. So by the end of the week, he's going to like Obadiah and stuff. It would take you all sermon to find it if I preached from Obadiah next week, right? But wherever he would read, she would just quote. And then people that had known her uh, would tell stories about her sitting in this rocking chair. And early in the morning, she would get up to read and pray, get up early in the morning. This is when there were milkmen that would deliver your milk on the porch in the morning, right? She wanted to be able to share the gospel with the milkman. And I could tell you about her son, my grandfather. Uh, John Luger is a man of great faith. And I could tell you about his daughter, my mom, who is a person of great faith. I'm so thankful for that momentum of a legacy of spiritual faith. And if you have stories like that in the family, in your family, I know you're so grateful for that. But some of you here, I know you're, you're feeling like the opposite. When you think about your family history, there's just a lot of brokenness and sadness and pain in it and trauma. And you might feel like I once did at the beach. If you grow up in Texas or Oklahoma, you don't really know about the beach, right? So I went, went to the beach. I have this very vivid memory. I can't remember exactly when it happened. I think it was in Florida, uh, a basketball trip in high school. But I was one of the first times swimming in the ocean. And I had been swimming for a while. And I kind of looked up. And the sand was really far away. And uh, I was like, oh, i got to start swimming back. And so I start trying to go back. And I do that for like a while. And it seems like it is equally or possibly more far away. I'm thinking, this isn't good. So then I start swimming really hard, and I'm getting exhausted. I wasn't a great swimmer, but I was like, you know, a distance runner. I've got pretty good stamina at this that stage of my life. But I'm like getting exhausted and thinking, am I going to die at the beach? (laughs) There's a lot of people that are not that far away watching me struggle out here. And I was going and going for a while. And then at some point, I just looked to the right. And like 50 yards away, there were people floating to the sand. They were like on floaties eating popsicles, right? And this is where all of a sudden it came to my mind, oh, I've heard something about like a riptide, rip current, something. I didn't know the lingo. I was from Texas, right? But uh, where the current's going really strong this way, where I am, and, and I needed to swim horizontal and to get over there. So I did. I just swam that way for a second and then floated into shore and everything was fine. Now, some of you probably feel like in life you're in that riptide. There is a generational momentum of family trauma. A family brokenness that can feel really hard. I wish I had a great sermon illustration about how you just swim horizontal and get rid of all that pressure. Unfortunately, I would be lying to you if I told you that it works like that. But here's what I want you to hear. If you feel like often in life, just the day to day decision to try to be faithful, just to live and to walk with God feels totally exhausting. And you wonder why it feels like other people are floating in. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. What it probably means is that you are fighting really significant spiritual battles that are going to have a generational blessing on those that come from you. Because you're not just swimming against the tide. You may not feel like it, but what's actually happening is God is working through you to change the tide. That's what's happening. So that because of your work to heal and because of your openness to let God bring healing and set new patterns, um, the, the, the ones who come after you 
are going to receive a blessing. There's going to be a different momentum. Now, I was also thinking some of us probably, and maybe this is most of us in here, we've got generational currents pulling both directions and we're spinning around, feel like we're in a little whirlpool. It could just be a little crazy. We're a little dizzy out there, right? And that was the situation of Israel. But as we finish and wrap up today, want to do a pop quiz. Did it say hope in how good you are at breaking generational cycles? Did it say hope in your diligence to be a perfect parent? Did it say hope in your skills as a disciple maker? Somebody shout it out. What did it say? That's right. Everybody say hope in God. Jesus is in the current with you, whichever way it's moving. And if if you've inherited generational blessings, praise God. Thank God for that gift and pay it forward. Let him bring exponential multiplication of blessings. And if you feel like you're fighting that that riptide, Jesus is there with you and he will not let you drown. He's going to sustain you and he's going to work in you and through you to bring blessing to the next generations, which is part of why it's so beautiful that today is a baptism today. Are you excited about Luke and, Hebert, uh, Luke and Emma Abair getting baptized? Thank God, because what that represents is God's covenant grace in this coming generation, pledging himself to keep steadfast love for thousands of generations. That's what happens as we pass on the gospel. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for your word that has taught us this morning. And Lord, I want to pray especially for those in here right now who... There may be some generational wounds that they're thinking about this morning. God, you are a gentle and a patient father. And I just pray that with your love and by the power of your spirit, you would touch those wounds in us with healing, grace and mercy. Lord, if there's people who are feeling like I'm just going to drown, I can't do it. I pray for an encouragement right now that you will sustain them. Their hope is you. You, God, will sustain them. You're not going to let them drown. Father, I pray for all of us, wherever we are, that just the beauty and the power of the cross and what it means that you would suffer, that Christ would suffer so that I can be healed but also so that generational healing can come to me and to all of us in here. It's just astoundingly beautiful, Lord God. We praise you and thank you for that. And I pray that as we worship you, as we continue to praise you for these last few minutes together this morning, and then as we celebrate this baptism, uh, Lord, that your spirit would continue to do the generational healing in us. But Lord, it's our prayer that for all of us, After we die and a hundred years after we die and a thousand years after we die, if Christ hasn't come back, there would be blessings of people walking with God, proclaiming the truth, loving their neighbors, making disciples because of us, Lord. Help us, help the parents and grandparents in the room to parent and grandparent like that. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who just needs to repent, Lord, I pray they'd have the courage to say to you or maybe to their family, I'm sorry I haven't made God my top priority, but I want to from now on. This would be a time of healing, generational healing. The way that we make disciples and the way that we share with others would bring blessing that by your power, by your spirit, would continue long beyond us. We give you all the glory for that. Pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.